When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Question of the day is what is actually priced in? Welcome to a special edition of Real Vision's Daily Briefing. It's Friday, January 27th, uh, 2023. I'm Harry Melandry, and I'm joined today by Michelle Mish Schneider, Director of Research and Education at Market Gauge. Um, in the second, hi Mish, how are you doing? Great, Harry, how are you? Uh, no worse than usual. <laughs> I really, really can't complain. So, in the second half of the show, um, you're going to tell us what you think is the next big trade. And that's just for Real Vision members. If you don't want to miss it, you can uh, sign up to us by clicking the link in the description or scanning the QR code on screen. So first of all, let's jump into some market analysis. And normally, I think I'd talk about some of the data. But really, the data was all, when I looked at it, it was all much of a muchness. Core, core PCE was pretty much in line, inflation expectations nudging down. So you know, what is actually price and why is risk trading so well? Well, there's a few things. Number one is we have an tremendous mm. amount of interest from retail investing now. They have really basically in the last couple of weeks been totally convinced that whatever Fed hikes we have seen to this point are basically over, maybe another quarter percent in the next meeting, but then there'll be an announcement of some kind of pause. So people take that as a sign now that the interest rate havoc that was wreaked in 2022 is over. Number two is they are really being told by many analysts and big institutional uh, analysts as well that things were of fair value and so it was time to buy the stock market or you were gonna miss some kind of great generational opportunity. Three is we just happen to always like to be bullish. You know, obviously people feel happier when the market's going up. Four is there was a lot of eyes on what happened with Tesla earnings in particular. And as we know, not only were the earnings better, but then Elon Musk came on like a cheerleader and talked up 2 million cars and uh, you know all the innovations he's got going on in the Cybertruck and the Gigafactory and yada, yada, yada. And people thought, oh, wow, okay, this is even better. And then on top of that, we had uh, today's numbers. Well, this week we had the GDP. So people thought, oh, great, recession is over. We had jobless claims. Okay, labor market's fine. Uh, and then really, I think the cap was the PCE numbers because there's an interesting thing that happens when the Fed funds rate and the PCE core matches, the Federal Reserve could very easily now, using uh, the, 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 the plot that, that they use, say, oh, 
okay, fine. We're, we are really at par here now, which means that we can relax things. We've broken the back of inflation. And uh, there you go. So I get the Fed. I can see why the Fed, uh, the Fed takes the stance it takes. And I kind of get the market, but I don't get how the two uh, the two entities can coexist because those views don't seem consistent to me. Um, for one, uh, we know the Fed's going to be tightening liquidity all the way through 2023 with QT. So, you know, that gives me some pause because the objective of that is not to make stocks go to the moon or to, to, to ease monetary conditions. It's to tighten monetary conditions. And then the second thing I don't get is if the market pricing requires both a soft landing and for the Fed to change its mind on long-term inflation risks, how is that going to happen? <laughs> well, you know, Harry, I spent all of December pretty much uh, writing uh, an outlook for 2023. And I really wanted to be convinced that I should believe that inflation had indeed peaked back in June 2022. And I have to say, I couldn't find any reasons for that to happen. You know, whether we're looking at sovereign spending, whether we're looking at geopolitical situations, whether we're looking at shortages in raw materials, whether we're looking at BRICS and the whole idea of what could possibly happen to the dollar, um, whether we're looking at anti-globalism that's been happening. Uh, wherever I looked, I could not find a solid reason why I should relax about inflation. And now you add exactly what you just said, the Fed into the mix. The one reason why could have been, you know, a like, like what we saw in the 1980s, the early 80s, would be if he went all Volcker-esque power. And clearly that's not going to happen. And like we just said, he has the data to say it doesn't have to happen. So if you add that all up, there really is going to be, I think, a trading range, which mimics what we saw in the 70s, where really basically starting in the late 60s until 82, the market kind of had a huge range, but it went kind of sideways. And we haven't really hit the top of that range yet. So if you quiet the noise and you just step back and look at, say, a monthly chart in the SPY, you're looking at 420 as a 23-month moving average, which is where I think we're going to see the top of the market. And any of these things come to pass, inflation starts goosing up as we go forward. We know gas prices have just gone up about 8.5% in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're seeing it in gold. Then I think the Fed is going to be back where they were in 2022, as, as, as reactive instead of proactive, and inflation will get goosed up and the market will take another tumble. And again, will it go into like a big spin, like below 3,000? No, but 3,200 is where there's an 80 month moving average, which is more of a business cycle over five, six years. It's very helpful. Um, so I, I think about these things and I think to myself about the 70s experience um, and how we, the Fed at some point failed to, to drive inflation out. I think 73, 70, 74, they declared victory a little too early. And, I, you know, it doesn't really matter in terms of my short-term trading whether that's the situation, though I kind of suspect it is. What matters is I look at these markets and they look to be trading up 
when there's all sorts of really good reasons why they might trade down. I tend to prefer to go with the market, not with the logic, if you see what I mean. Because markets, markets are weighing mechanisms. They know everything I know, plus some stuff. Um, well, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, would you fade this, or do you think you'd go with this with this rally in risk? Well, I was trained on a commodities exchange floor where long ago <laughs> there was no social media, there was no 24-hour news loop. There was just a bunch of people standing on the floor following price and order flow. And that also really would sort of translate into momentum. And so there's a part of me when I was younger and not nearly as sophisticated or as experienced as I am now because of all of this incredible influx of information that you have to discern every day, I just would follow the chart. And it would only come out afterwards Let's say if I was buying crude oil at the time, in the late 80s, for example, it would only come out afterwards that there were situations with OPEC or as in 1990, when we had the first Persian Gulf War, when oil went ballistic. You know, these are the things, that, there's always that chicken egg in terms of the technicals versus the fundamentals. And since I was born of technical analysis, and only started to get more fascinated as a hybrid trader into the fundamental analysis, I would say the shorter answer is price rules until otherwise. And right. yeah, I mean, that's that's where I think actually retail investors have gotten a little smarter because they're actually looking at charts and also trading more actively, which is smart in this environment. Which I think makes everything a little bit harder. You kind of need, need a constant uh, supply of suckers in any market to make it easier to trade. People late to capitulate, people early to go in the wrong trade. If everyone's trading optimally, it's going to be real hard. Um, and there's a lot of, we're, we're trading in a different environment anyway. I don't know if it really changes much for people who are using point and figure or, or technicals, but there are very fast algos that know quite a lot of our basic technical toolkit and apply it really quick. Well, the, and we at Market Gauge have spent years developing algorithmic models. We have a lot of them now, and we have these blends. And I'm, I, I have found that watching the math, as opposed to think overthinking about what the market is doing, has been extremely helpful. However, that's not yeah. to discount that you need a discretionary component to things, because obviously sometimes we actually can outperform the algos because we can see something coming before the math actually sets in. So yes, it's a very complex world. And of course, as you mentioned the word sucker, I immediately go to WC Fields as we know a sucker born every minute. And right now the euphoria is, and the fact that almost every area, not every area, but almost every area is doing so well that you can just go back to the, the days when you could throw a dart and even if it went against you a little bit, know that, hey, who has to be worried it's going to go higher again is probably the scariest thing of all because you and I can see what's coming. But to your point, until it comes, have fun. Yeah, you don't want to front run, front run that trade. You'll lose a lot of money shorting a market where everyone believes it should go down and it's not going down. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, and, you know, the back of my head, I can't help but think that if you've got $2 trillion of reverse repo, how tight can liquidity conditions really be? You know, back in the day, $2 trillion was a lot of money. Um, so <laughs> any, anyway, so not to mention may- our, 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 our credit, uh, debt issue that we have our debt issue, I should say is, uh, something that nobody's really thinking about. And of course there are two choices, which is raise the debt ceiling or just print more money. And it seems like that may be where we're going right now to avoid, uh, yet another political dance, uh, between whether or not we should raise it. So, you know, that's a great point, because one of the things I was worrying about, and I think I saw that Steno um, also, you know, talked about this in in his signals piece, but uh, the debt ceiling complicates matters. We don't know exactly. Liquidity seems to me to be more than ample at the moment, and the way things are trading, you know, markets, asset allocators are underweight equity risks. They're underweight risk generally, um, waiting for everything to go down. Um, the debt ceiling might counterintuitively result in additional liquidity entering this market between now and say Q2, Q3, squeezing things a little higher, still <laughs> not lower. Am I thinking about that right? I think so. I, you know, it's almost everything that I hear, everything that I hear, all I hear is inflation. It's almost to the point where, I don't know if you know the song, Maria from West Side Story, Yes. You playing that song in my head, except saying Maria is inflation, inflation, blah, 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 more inflation. I mean, because it's like exactly what you just said. It seems to be inevitable if we print more money, if we spend more money, if we increase our debt capabilities, if we continue to try to have trade wars and a more anti-globalist approach with China, um, as China's trying to do with us, uh, especially with the chip wars that we're still having, you know, all of this is really, and then add the dollar to this mix. And we're right back in the seventies again, let's go back to that seventies because what happened in this late 70s was the dollar got devalued after a lot of commodities were going up after because of not only uh, food shortages because of mother nature, but governments hoarding food commodities, particularly sugar, which we can talk about. All of this went to what happened, which was things got out of control. Everything here has told me that this whole narrative that we're talking about right now and what we're seeing in the market is really resting on the actual idea, and I see people fight me on this constantly, that inflation has peaked. That's it. We don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, you can have local and global maxima, and I would not be in the slightest bit surprised if we have reached our local maxima, but haven't yet reached our global maxima. you know, you mentioned commodity markets, and I think those commodity markets are kind of supportive of your thesis there, aren't they? Well, yes. Did you, lumber. Let's just look at lumber. 
because lumber actually rose, uh, at, at, yesterday was up seven and a half percent. I think it went up again today. I didn't look at the futures price today, but it has risen tremendously. Let's look at copper and, uh, and steel, even though they've kind of consolidating at this point, they've gone up tremendously. Um, and now let's take a look at the precious metals, particularly gold. Because I go, I, well, gold is really relaying something, I think, to the market that people are not really paying attention to. We've already known it's completely undervalued relative, let's say, to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But now let's add some of these soft commodities because they have also started rising again. And that brings me always back to the sugar market, that clear 21 cents a pound today, which almost mimics what happened in the 70s where within 1974, once sugar cleared 20 cents at that point, by November, it was trading at 60 cents a pound. And that was really, uh, you know, I, we're seeing this again. So that tells me a lot right there because sugar has a lot more implication than just the price of sugar or that sugar's bad for you. Uh, India's having troubles with it right now. Europe's supposedly slow uh, to be able to produce enough sugar. India's talking about stopping its exports of sugar while European countries need more imported. And then of course we have China waking up with also being a huge consumer. So all of these raw materials from the metals to the softs, even coffee went skyrocketing today to lumber and Dr. Copper, right? They're all, saying uh, inflation, broken back, uh, maybe not so much. So you remind me of Zoltan Poznar's comments. Are you familiar with Zoltan's stuff? You've not really. Uh, so he was, he just, one of the things he said was that we're basically in some sort of war environment where either the Russians are fighting the Ukrainians and it's a proxy war with NATO or the relationship between China and the United States is deteriorating and everyone's preparing for war. War is in its very nature inflationary because you need all those raw materials to build out your, your military and to, and to deny them to your opponent as well. Um, is that part of what's happening? How sympathetic are you to that argument? Oh, very much so. It's, all, it's also a great detractor from a mess that's being created, whatever that mess might look like. Um, you know, when you really have things going poorly, start a war and then everybody rallies behind the war. We certainly have seen that in the past in this country. And by the way, let's go back to the 70s. We also had the Vietnam War going on, although that turned out not to be the great detractor at some point. Um, and instead it just created a lot of social unrest. You know, it's interesting about war, the Ukraine-Russian war, because I've read some people, and I'm certainly not gonna claim to be an expert on this, but from what I've read, there are some people who think, even though our tanks that we're supposedly sending now, the new round of tanks and ammo and money that we've sent is actually really sort of an act of war that could be perceived by Russia to be even more antagonistic and lead to more of a World War III situation. I would not I would not discount that possibility. You know, certainly with the rise of populism and the rise of anti-globalism and all of, you know, if we really do get a situation where there are shortages of essential raw materials, and we haven't even discussed the energy market yet, any of this could ignite, uh, particularly, uh, like I said, it, it, especially as we're getting into an election year, 
as a detractor from Biden's low popularity. Very often uh, during a war, a president is automatically reelected because he's sort of at the helm. And I say he, because at this point, that's all we've had, is at the helm of, of essentially, you know, the, the commander in chief of war. So who knows? I don't know. It's scary to think about, but it's certainly possible. And uh, you mentioned energy markets. What what are you thinking on energy markets? I, I noticed that oil, crude, um, has traded, it seemed to bottom pretty much at the point when the EU announced the crude sanctions on December 5th against Russia. Um, I got the impression those sanctions actually worked for a change. Um, and I'll tell you why I thought that. Just after they announced those sanctions, um, the Russian uh, Federation announced that it was going to apply an exit tax on uh, foreigners leaving uh, uh, their, you know, ex exiting capital from Russia of at least 50%. That's quite a haircut. Um, so it's pretty obvious they were retaliating for something. Um, my theory is they're retaliating for those sanctions on, that were imposed on the fifth of deck, which basically forced them to ship all of their oil halfway around the world to find a market and erode their, their revenues from oil. Um, should we worry that energy markets are tighter than you? Is this just China's opening? No, I think we do have some tightness. I'm, just look at the United States with the strategic reserves. We were supposed to be buying back all that oil under $70 a barrel. And I think we bought just a fraction of that. And so also because of the current administration, um, that could change in 2024, but we know that drilling is not something that's been a factor here. So we're not looking for new oil in this country. And you know, the big thing has been the natural gas. I mean, natural gas has tumbled spectacularly, which is really interesting as a commodities trader, if we just take the fundamentals out of it, it just shows you the type of volatility you can have in a commodity. You want to really catch that wave and you want to get out before that wave starts to recede. And there's the classic example. But as far as the actual crude oil itself, um, yeah, I mean, there's the enter the Middle East and there's been conversations with Saudi Arabia, China, India and Russia about petrodollars and changing that. The, the, the Saudi Arabia uh, and, and the other oil exporting countries um, have not necessarily increased their production. So their supply is down. Um, and then, of course, yeah, China waking up is, is certainly going to be a factor. I don't even think they've fully, fully woken up yet. So, you know, I don't know, I, I call oil the X factor here. I think it's kind of amazingly boring right now as a trader. We've tried to buy oil a couple of times and it's just going sideways. So we actually have just gotten out and said, okay, we'll wait and see when it starts to percolate. And if it actually breaks down under $70 a barrel, let's say, you know, maybe I would get more in the camp of inflation, not necessarily going out of control. But even that may not convince me fully because again, let's go back to the 70s. In the late 70s, it wasn't oil that triggered that next round of inflation. It was other factors, a lot of them being, uh, like I said, the dollar devaluation, some geopolitical situation uh, and a federal reserve that didn't necessarily get control of the situation until 18% interest rates in 1981.
We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, we have a, a sound bite. Um, let's see if we've got it from, from Steno Signals. Um, Andreas gives us an update on the ripple effects of China's reopening on commodities. And we still have uh, clear spillovers to relative uh, pricing in asset markets and equity markets from this Chinese reopening. We've had a massive start to the year in European equities as a consequence of this reopening. We have clear spillovers to the commodity space. Industrial metals are performing, as I uh, basically highlighted a few weeks back. And energy is also moving Um not to the same extent in equity space, but energy commodities are on the move as a consequence of this Chinese reopening as well. So I think it's safe to say that China is open. Whether it's a huge economic comeback is still questionable. Uh, and I think it ultimately boils down to the question whether the clients of China in the West will regain momentum during the spring. And I still have my doubts around that question. So there, um, Andreas is basically arguing that uh, with China's opening, there's this huge stimulus from from the reopening, and it will it's an impulse pushing through uh, across all of our markets, risk markets. Um, and the question is whether we're going to persist, or that that momentum will be regained through the spring, and and push on through. Um, what do you think, Mish? I think that. I, I totally agree that it's it, it, it probably will push. And it's just another one of the factors of everything, Harry, we just talked about, of why it's very hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that inflation is over, particularly given China demand is huge. And again, I mean, I hate to keep hammering home the 70s, but what really sparked the sugar rise in 74 and then again in 79 was China starting to consume when there was low amount of material supply demand. So we still have, not just in that area of food, but we still have a lot of shortage. And then you add anything like any weather problems that could evolve, that too would add to it. And we obviously have had issues with weather throughout globally. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, you put this all together, China's just another huge reason why we should not get complacent when it comes to uh, supply demand. Yeah, I, I can see, you know, wouldn't it be ironic if we get a risk rally to the top of the range, just about here, just when everybody was anticipating a longer recession and a hawkish Fed. And that doesn't mean the Fed isn't hawkish. And it doesn't mean that we don't have inflationary problems, a longer term inflationary problems. It just means here and now people are out over their skis and too underweight risk. And, you know, that's how markets move. They move to, to crush weak positions. Um, and it bothers me that the weakest position out there seems to be the underweight inequities. 
Well, yes, and um, and and that is again to me. Listen, I again, you know, I would certainly have no problem buying equities, and we have been buying equities, whether it's been through our quants or whether it's been through our discretionary model. And we're pretty varied in terms of what we own, and we do have exposure to China as well. But I still go back to equities and commodities can go up together. That certainly has happened in the past until there's some slip up, whether it be in monetary policy, whether it be war, whether it be something to do with mother nature, whether it be some kind of social unrest, whether it be because of food hoarding, whatever it is. And then commodities continue to go parabolic while the equities market goes down. So yes, we are underweight to a degree, but a lot of liquidity has come back into the market over the last couple of weeks. And, um, and so we're not necessarily as underweight as we were, let's say a couple of weeks ago. Um, but you're right. I mean, I'm talking to people who are very suspect of this rally still, even as we are. But I want to mention something, you know, again, about the technicals, because the trading range is such a factor. Again, people think that either we're either going to go super high or super low. And we forget that there is a period, this 15 year period of history where we really went sideways. So I'm really enjoying looking at the charts right now in terms of this range. So for example, let's even just take the highs from December. We have not reached it in the S&P 500. We actually matched today in the small caps in the Russell 2000, where we closed a little bit slightly under and we certainly are nowhere near it in NASDAQ. And so if you just look at those three indices, what it's saying is, is that, again, ignoring everything and looking at the charts, if we get through those December highs, and we're looking at the next top of the rally, which could be that 4,200 in the SPX, could be about 200 in the Russell 2000. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a fresh look. So I think that... We will get to a point if we break those levels that this underweight in terms of risk and equities, people in equities, will start to pile in. And then, of course, you know, um, that could be really the most dangerous thing of all if there's any policy change within the banks or even worse, any unraveling of current policy change that hasn't been long term effective. Now, one other thing I want to say, when we've had inflation rates historically over 6%, which is basically where CPI came back down to. We've yeah. been as right. We've been as high as eight or nine percent. It statistically takes at least six years to reverse that. We are so busy thinking that that has just been reversed automatically because we're looking at places that um, inflation has naturally come down because of a COVID situation, like supply chain and inventory, used cars, housing, etc. But really, again, it doesn't necessarily take into effect that if you are producing goods, if you're mining, if you're growing, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything resolves overnight. So you got to look at all these factors, but then you also have to take all those factors, put them on the shelf and just follow the chart. So if we are underweight, excuse me, in risk, and we're going to go up another couple of hundred points or whatever in the S&P or another 500 in the Dow or what have you, so be it. I think that's, you know, basically why 
The biggest thing that anybody can do right now is learn how to understand what risk is, understand risk management, and understand that when you have these sort of euphoric moves, just like we saw last year in natural gas, probably makes sense to take some profits. Absolutely. Protect capital at all costs, all the time. Right. right. Um, okay, so that just about wraps up today's daily briefing. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Mish on the Real Vision platform. If you're not a member, use the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen and join the Real Vision party. Um, so let's jump into what we like to call the next big trade. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.